Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me as usual, Steve Ovens. Welcome to the program, sir. Thanks again, Noah. Good to be back. So again, a reminder about our questions bot. You can message questions colon linuxdelta.com on matrix and you can do that from the geek lab geek lab is geeklab.ninja you can join it in any web browser those that bot will put the questions directly in front of my eyeballs and we will address them here on the air now that works throughout the week so if you have a question and you're listening to this on the rerun you go ahead and drop that question to the questions bot and we'll take it of course, questions always entertained live at asknoahshow.com or live at 855-456-6624. The other about 10 bucks asks, it's been mentioned that you should rotate your SSH keys or remove former employee SSH keys, which is, of course, a given. How do you manually copy or remove keys or do you use an SSH key management software? If you use software, could you specify what software you use? Thanks. So, Steve, I'll start with you. How do you manage SSH keys? You have an organization, they give you a call, they say, hey, we fired Joe, we don't want Joe to be able to access any of the servers anymore. What's your process for uh, for revoking that kind of access? Depends on what kind of infrastructure they've got behind them and how they were managing SSH keys to begin with. So, for example, I like to use FreeIPA or the uh, the Red Hat directory servers because they, they provide a centralized plan for you to to put SSH keys. And so it gives you a spot to just remove them from the server and then there are no more access granted. Um, I know that Active Directory also has extensions to allow you to do similar things. So that's the ideal way. If you don't have this, um, the next best way, in my opinion, is having a file checked into Git that has your SSH keys that you're pushing around and update that and then have a mechanism whereby Ansible or Salt or however you're doing notices there's been a change, picks it up and, and pushes it out. I uh, I have used Gravitational Teleport, um, which is a, a piece of software um, that manage to, to manage uh, remote SSH access. Now, truth be told, I haven't got it working exactly the way that I would like to have it working uh, with my YubiKey, and so because of that, it, it isn't standard practice for it to, us to use it. We've just uh, we've just kind of played around with it. Typically, we have a script that will go out and either pull it from GitLab. Uh, we also have we've also have certain machines that will tie into I forget the name off the top of my head, but uh, Canonical has an SSH key management system um, that you can upload your key there. And so for any clients that are using or heavily invested in the Ubuntu infrastructure, uh, we just go ahead and use that. Um, so th- those are a couple different ways to do it. And then, yeah, there's a plenty of clients. In fact, I'd say probably the v- vast majority of them because they're independent and they don't typically have a large cluster of servers. At least our clients don't They have five, maybe 10 at the most. And we just crawl in there, go into the authorized SSH key file and create a new one with who we 
who we want to have access. And then I just replace all of those. And I do it that way for two reasons. So one, even if I didn't suspect that a person, uh, let's say I'm going to take uh, Steve for an example. And, and we hire Steve and Steve comes into a client and we give him access to one server and he does some work. And six months down the road, eight months down the road, they call me and they say, hey, we had to fire Steve. And can you remove his access? What we'll typically do is say, who should have access to what servers? And we'll take those people that need access to all the servers and we'll drop a new authorized key file on all of them. And then obviously tweak to say, hey, you know, these these people need access to only these and, and so on and so forth. The advantage of doing that is you kind of do a refresh of every machine. And so if you're managing it by hand, it's kind of nice to know that somebody didn't sneak something in there throughout the time, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I typically, we revoke access uh, by hand. I, I will tell you though, just to kind of follow up on that question, one of the big things about uh, the YubiKey is in fact, kind of the whole idea there is that we don't have to do that at all. Um, in large part, what we're doing is taking the YubiKey back and then reissuing it to another employee. And we just update the documentation to say, hey, this key now belongs um, to that person. Uh, our second question that comes in via the questions bot, questions colon linuxdelta.com, is there a truly usable hardware daily driver for voice commands, which is also open source, or does such product not simply exist for prime time? So, Steve, I'm going to entirely kick that question to you because I know you're a big fan of uh, of uh, the name escapes me. Now. Mycroft. Mycroft. Yeah, thank Mycroft. you. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about is it is it ready for prime time? So I guess it would depend on what you need it to do. So as whenever someone says, well, it depends, that kind of gives people a little bit uh, off-putting, right? But I guess the the problem that, that Mycroft is currently having is big players are locking them out of services like Spotify. So if Spotify wants to be on, on the Amazon products. Amazon makes a deal and says, you know, this is the kind of the requirements. And they set that requirement high enough that uh, the little players like Mycroft can't actually meet that. So in this case, there is no official way to say play Spotify music on Mycroft. And so for issuing commands and, you know, getting the weather and all of that sort of stuff, Mycroft serviceable. You have to. You also have to weigh the idea of, is it going to be as performant as something that Amazon can put out? Depends. You know, they have a lot of dollars to put into refining the hardware and refining the software, and they've got a big ecosystem. So it's it's one of those things that I, I find it completely serviceable. I, I like it a lot. And for me, it does what I need because I'm interested in the privacy factor, and um, I don't mind having a little bit of a lag. Like Amazon's products, for example, and same thing with Google – they're relatively quick to respond, and they are. So, they are out there. There's a couple of other um, competitors out there that, as far as I know, they don't come with hardware. Like Mycroft has the dev kits, and they're working towards releasing, like doing a commercial release. Um, but there are a couple of other open source, um, let's say, competitive friendships out there that don't have hardware with them, but if you put them on hardware, they will be also perfectly serviceable. Very cool. 
Our first email this week comes in from Sean. Sean writes in and says, take a look at this. I'm in for fun looking at your enclosure mention. Not that I need it, but I've used Ventoy before. And a USB making it persistent, not on a fast SSD, means it really slows boot up. I can't decide if the enclosure is an SSD on Amazon that says it's a thousand gigabyte limit. So you must have an add-on SSD to keep updates. Side note, I just put an SSD in my old desktop and moved my slash home directory to it. The old hard drive still handles the OS. My next step is to add another SSD to replace the hard drive for another SSD with one that added a bit of RAM to the eight gigs and stabilized the PC and stabilized the boot up time, which was previously slow. But I really can't turn the machine off now and it doesn't die as often. The new SSD would really bring some life back into that old machine. Back to my topic. There is a pup there. So there is puppy Linux and another ISO system, which allow for persistence using some other method than Casper files. So some explanation of Casper files might be nice. From your coworker on down who has all the ISOs he'll ever need to the listeners, a common Casper file for all to share would be nice, minus the system updates. Hence, perhaps the boot up and standard settings are there. Maybe even some static hint files. Check this link out. Just wondering. And then he links to ventoy.net slash plugins underscore persistence. Um, Steve, thoughts on this? I'm not exactly sure why you would go with common Casper files. Um, so for people that are, are less familiar, Casper files are a form of compressed file that exists on ISOs and, and live media. And you can get into some weirdness if you use a Casper file that um, has or does not have things that the rest of your boot process expects. So I'm not really sure what value you would have to have to having common Casper files. Um, I'm not quite sure where the core of the question is, like mm. what 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 the problem statement here is. So I just say that, um, of course, changing your home directory out for an SSD is going to make a, a big difference. And you might have a bit of a hard time swapping your um, root partition for an SSD by just copying files over. It can be done. You'll have to pay attention to things like how are you mounting drives in your FS tab. That's where that'll trip you up. And if you have things like Lux encryption, um, you'll have a harder time moving over a, a machine that has Lux encryption because of uh, various reasons. So good luck with that and let us know how that turns out. Yeah. And if you have any specific questions and uh Write us back in. Charlie writes in and says to Steve and Noah, after recommending the HTPC little flat mini PC to Linux community, I ended up buying one for myself to replace or supplement my Toshiba Chromebook 2 CB35. I got the items from Ally Express. See how long it takes to get them from China to the AU during in the international pandemic. And then he gives a link to all of the individual pieces, the fanless 4K mini PC, the nine inch touchscreen, a USB HDMI 4K capture card, a USB sound card. I will be looking to make this my own custom solid wood portable laptop using solar panel, 18650 batteries and the above parts, along with an old ThinkPad USB keyboard from Amazon. All the best. Regards, Charlie. Hey, Steve, I got to tell you, I love, I'm a sucker for stuff like this. I absolutely love stuff like this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I feel like this is back to that part of 
geekum or nerdum to where, hey, I'm learning how I can combine these products to make a thing rather than just go out to the store and buy a thing. I have a secret uh, project that's not about to not be so secret anymore. I've always wanted to take one of the old Apple iBook G3 clamshells and uh, use a Raspberry Pi to to bring it back to life. And I just think it'd be great to be able to use a modern laptop. The, the, the weight, the bulk doesn't bother me. And I just think it'd be cool to have this old, colorful, you know, unique looking computer and but running on something that could actually be modern. The problem I've run into is getting the keyboard um, to actually interface because they use a special interface cable. And uh, but stuff like this where you're building from scratch or companies that make laptops that build from scratch, I think is fantastic. So thanks, Charlie, for sharing this. I appreciate it. We'll have the links to all of the items that Charlie ordered in the show notes. It looks from the price. Uh, he's just over a few hundred bucks to do this. So that, that's pretty cool. Our third email comes in from Man Patriot, also known as Wayne. Wayne, Wayne writes in and says, hi, Noah. I'll. I'm a long-time listener, but returning from a bit of a hiatus and currently catching up on the backlog. You had a guest on to discuss security and penetration testing. Utility wipe was mentioned as a way to securely delete files. This utility and others like it do not work as intended on solid-state drives because of where leveling implemented at the firmware level. Because NAND Flash has a finite number of write operations, the firmware attempts to distribute the write operations across these NAND chips as evenly as possible in an attempt to extend the lifespan. This information is not exposed to the operating system, so when attempting to perform a multi-pass write of the file, the data will eventually end up in various locations as best determined by the drives and the firmware. Similarly, these utilities do not work with copy-on-write file systems like ButterFS and ZFS. Because of this, and is never exposed to the operating system, recovery of this data would require a skilled physical attack of the drive itself. With adequate tooling, though, it is trivial to dump the contents of NAND chips and later reconstruct the files. These techniques are commonly used by data recovery experts and forensic teams. As such, I always recommend full disk encryption for privacy and security concerns. Additionally, if you have the need to store confidential data that will later need to be removed, I would recommend storing this data in an encrypted volume or disk image. When it's time to discard the data, you can simply delete the files and forget the encryption key. It does not matter if the disk image retains intact on the file system because it's just garbage data without the key to decrypt it. Many utilities exist for this, but it's not... But an easy-to-use tool I would recommend for this is Veracrypt. Additionally, since this tool runs on Windows, Mac, uh, and Linux, you can use it as a way to securely deliver compromised material to a client in a proof of breach. Thank you for what you do for the community. Regards, Wayne, a.k.a. Band Patriot. So a couple things there. Um, you're right that the, the, the standard wipe utility, actually, even on a regular disk, uh, you're, you're so break this backwards. So you're right that the wipe utility isn't going to do much on a on an SSD because of the, the wear leveling. However, th there are utilities built into SSDs specifically to wipe them. Um, and so it's it's considered it's called the, the secure erase function. And it's built into most SSDs. Now, my understanding of how that uh, that tooling works is the drive itself actually throws away its own encryption key. And so it just simply rolls the data so that you can't access the data becomes garbage. Um, now you're trusting in that circumstance, obviously you're trusting the drive manufacturer to implement that ATA secure erase functionality properly. And you're also trusting um, that they're not storing things outside of the parts of the disk that they claim they're storing it to. If you encrypt using the operating system like Lux or whatever else, 
all of your your actual file system that you talk to, that you read to, that you write to, that you function, that you interact with is sitting on top of an encrypted container that is then sitting on top of the SSD. So, yes, uh, you should encrypt always when using SSD. And frankly, I just don't trust flash storage. There's enough security experts out there, Kevin Mitnick being one of them, um, that store all of their sensitive data still on spinning rust. And I, you know, I don't have the time to dig in and, and do the level of due diligence that those guys do. I'm just willing to take their word for it. Steve, I, 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 you're, kind, you're kind of a paranoid fellow as well. Do, is this the kind of thing that, that bothers you? Is this the kind of thing that you think about when you're setting up your laptop? Or is it more along the lines of just, I have to have it work? So for me, my laptops, and much to my wife's chagrin, they automatically get Lux encrypted. Um, I know that it doesn't do anything if your computer goes to sleep, but but the idea is if you want to rip the the laptop the hard drive out of the laptop and try and do something with it, you won't be able to. I mean, there are some extreme cold attacks and things like that 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 can't, you're still vulnerable to, but it goes back to what I've been saying before about not being the lowest hanging fruit. Um, generally speaking, I don't store sensitive data on SSDs as, as much as possible. So um, yeah, I violate that rule from time to time. I'm not so worried about making sure that the secure erase function works properly. I think that there are some there are some mitigations that you can make, but honestly, I would ask, like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to secure a race and then throw away a disk? Because if that's what your goal is, I honestly take a hammer to it. Like, I, I, I make it so that you have to really want it, even on my... Uh, my metal discs. So I'll run D band or I'll run uh, shred, something like that. Then I'll take the drill to it and I'll drill holes in it. And then on top of that, I will actually smash off the, the SATA tabs, like the power and the, um, and the SATA connector. And then I'll actually unscrew that bit and throw it out separately. So, I mean, you can still get it. Anybody who's determined enough will be able to get my stuff. I'm just trying not to be the low hanging fruit. Like, you won't be able to pick up one of my hard drives and put it in your system and have an easy time of it. You know, it's it's interesting you you say that. I um so a couple things there. First of all, uh there the the if you call a professional drive destruction company, you call DocuShred or whatever the the company is and say, "Hey, we're a business, we need you to come out and destroy some hard drives." That's effectively what they do is they punch the drive. They have a thing it has six little pins in it and it punches six holes. Uh, right through the center of the drive. And the idea is that's considered enough uh, to make the drive irrecoverable. Um, frankly, I trust encryption more than I trust my own ability to be able to destroy something. Where I think this comes into play, Steve, is more and more laptops are being sold now without the ability to remove the storage device in them. It comes soldered in, it comes attached. And so if you ever part with the computer, you have to be able to trust that the computer that I set up and the encryption that I set up is going to be in the ultimately in the hands of somebody else in that situation. What would you do? I honestly wouldn't buy a hard, I wouldn't buy a device that had the hard drive soldered in. Ever? I, I know that kind of circumvents your argument, but, but I believe strongly enough in that, that I just wouldn't do that. That's fair. What are you going to do if they ever make a laptop that doesn't have a removable hard drive? Uh, I don't know. I guess I'll cross that when I get there. Fair enough. Our fourth email comes in from Mark. Mark writes in and says, love your show. Thanks so much for the years of great content. I've been supporting various versions of Mac OS, Windows, BSD, and Linux for so long that I've just grown accustomed to keeping a library of ISOs on a USB stick and on my laptop. 
and I just use DDE to write them to a USB as needed. Since your mention of Ventoy, my process has been much more streamlined. Thanks again, and keep up the great work, Mark. Our fifth email comes in from Augustine. Augustine writes in and says, Hi, Noah. First of all, thanks for all the great content. I recently got a new job, and with it, an apartment. How do you get an apartment with a new job? Or maybe you got the new apartment because of the new job. All right, I'm with you. There's a Wi-Fi included. However, it's controlled by my employer. Oh, here we go. And so it's basically an open Wi-Fi network with a captive portal. I'd love to have a little bit more control over my network, for example, using my own local DNS to get some privacy. I was thinking about buying a small little travel router, specifically the GL.inet. This way, I could connect a small router to the Wi-Fi network and allow me to solve the captive portal problem, and after that, connect all of my devices to the network created by the router. Maybe I could even add a VPN out and get some more privacy. What do you think? Any recommendations? Best regards. Augustine. So a couple things here. We've used uh, the GL iNet routers. In fact, I, up until recently, traveled with one uh, everywhere I went. And one of the great things about it is they actually include an open VPN client built right into it. So you have DigitalOcean. You set up yourself a DigitalOcean droplet. You host yourself an v- open VPN server. And you program that little guy to dial out. Um, and you would have a little bit more privacy. Now, where I found the limitations of those uh, GL routers are they're cheap for a reason. They're cheap because they don't have a ton of memory and they don't have a ton of storage. And so one of the things that you're going to run into or one of the issues that you potentially run into is uh, poor performance. And so what I might recommend is I'm, I might recommend you check out using something like a NetGate uh, SG1100. Um, we have taken that router and used it inside of hotels. It's a $200 router, tiny little pocket-sized router. But we've taken it and put it inside of hotels that have hundreds or thousands of guests all using it at the same time, and it doesn't miss a beat. Just as an example to a client, I spit out 48 different VLANs. I spit out a VLAN from every single port on a 48-port switch just to show that it could handle it, and it did it without a without a without without missing a beat. So I'd highly recommend check out the SG-1100, but if you don't do that or that doesn't work out for any reason, then absolutely the GLNet is, is, is a great way to go, and you could always start with the GLNet and upgrade. Steve, when you travel, do you take a router with you? Yep, I got the Mango. Um, and I love it. So it's another GLNet um, device. It's really small. And honestly, it has been kind of a savior for bandwidth-constrained environments, more than I would have thought, because the captive portal and I run, ad, I run an ad blocker on it. And that makes all the difference in the world when you're in a, a very constrained environment, especially when you can do things like control the DNS and other options like that. Very cool. Six email comes in from Anthony. Anthony writes in and says, interesting show and take on the proton situation. I'm reaching out because I know your producer and I felt that I could provide a unique perspective from the quote unquote other side. One thing that everyone in the discussion around proton and the logging seems to be completely missing is this. Proton does not allow the use of its services for illegal activity. The terms of service on ProtonMail are very clear that it cannot be used for illegal actions. Everyone who's complaining that Proton provided the IP logs for an active legal law enforcement operation is missing a key point here. Due to the user engaging in illegal activity, they violated the agreed upon terms with ProtonMail. And in so doing, Proton is not bound to its agreement since the user violated it. Proton must watch out for its own interests and the interests of all its law abiding 
users. A user breaking the terms of service has no legal or ethical complaint against ProtonMail for not abiding by the terms of service in which the user has violated. Let me give you an example, very down to earth. Let's say you have a friend who comes to you and asks to borrow your car. They say that they're trying to surprise their wife with a gift and they need a car so they won't be identified if it's seen. Your friend then asks you not to tell anyone that you're using his car. You agree because you're friends. The agreement between you and him is that you'll keep quiet and he'll use your car for the purpose he said he would. If he instead goes and transport a few hundred kilos of cocaine and we have evidence that the vehicle is being used in that matter, we will search out the owner of the vehicle. When we approach you, do you really have any intention of telling the police? Sorry, I I told him that I wouldn't tell anyone who he was. Did you tell him that you wouldn't tell anyone? Yes, you did. But under the belief that he was being truthful about his reasons for using your car. When you discover that he was lying to you, do you still feel honor bound to uphold the agreement that's broken? Would you be willing to go to jail because your vehicle was used to transport cocaine instead of giving the information about someone who not only lied to you, but was willing to put your life and your family's life at risk? By violating Proton's terms of service and engaging in illegal activity, the user in question has placed Proton in the position that you would be with your car. Should Proton comply with a lawful legal request for the information because they do because they are an accomplice and become criminally liable for the illegal activity that occurred on their service? I doubt any of your listeners who have complained about Proton would hesitate for a second to turn over evidence to someone who has lied to them, broken their trust, violated their agreement, and placed them at risk of direct legal harm. As the saying goes, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Just my two cents. Anthony. So I want to, usually I would not read emails quite that long. But I wanted to because I think I think Anthony brings up a couple of excellent points. Um, first of all, and I said this last week on the episode, that ju- privacy is not an excuse. It's not a shroud for illegal activity. Privacy is a fundamental human right, and we should protect it because it's a fundamental uh, because it's a function of a fundamental human right. Now, I don't I am not upset with Proton for complying with a legal request. I think that they could have been more clear about what the, what information they logged in the first place. One of my concerns is this. If you tell me that your site doesn't log an IP address and that you don't know who I am and that you're not paying attention to that, you can't then come back to me and say, well, you did something wrong, so we we gave this information up. Well, you told me you didn't have that information in the first place. And that you t- you you gave that information or you made that claim before anything illegal was ever done. So I fall down on both sides. Does this user have a right to complain? No, you're right. He was using it for something illegal. On the other hand, that doesn't change the fact that I still hold Proton Mail and I still hold uh, Andy N to the high level of uh, to a high level of integrity because of the product that he that he issues. Now, like I said in last week's episode, it's worth repeating again. He came out very clearly and said, here, if there's miscommunication or if there's uncertainty, if there's if there's not clarity here, here's what we do. Here's why we do it. Here's how we do it. Here's what you can expect. And I don't know what more you could possibly expect from a service provider. So that's my answer to those of you who are saying that this is you know, proton mail can't be trusted, those kinds of things. But to the users that say, well, if, you know, hey, this is the way it works. If they commit a crime, the problem with that way of thinking to, you know, respectfully submitting to you that at the end of the day, the whole reason that we value privacy in the first place is because is precisely because laws everywhere in the world are not necessarily just. 
Now, I'm not speaking to this specific example. I, in fact, I've not really dug into this specific example. But I can tell you that there are countries all over the world that have laws that are unjust. And in those cases, the only way that people have to fight back against their government is to have the electronic tools to allow them to communicate, first and foremost, to explore their views and decide if that's if that really is a valid stance to take and if and to hear dissenting opinions, which are, in my opinion, there's the answer to too much free speech is more free speech. So I don't really have a problem with people communicating. And I, I, I take exception to people that say, well, you shouldn't be able to talk about that or you shouldn't be able to have that conversation, shouldn't be able to ask that question, you shouldn't be able to get that answer. Um, that's where I think the value in things like Element, in things like Proton Mail, and those kinds of those kinds of things. Anytime you step over the line to intentionally commit a crime, to intentionally harm somebody, uh, those things are all wrong, and you should face the consequences of them, hands down. The line that I think that we're treading here is they said they didn't have that information to begin with. Now they've clarified. Now we understand. Um, but yeah, I guess that, that Steve, I'm, I'm interested. Am, am I off base here? Well, I, I guess I'll answer that question by kind of putting forward my own thoughts on this. I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and I think that just because they didn't do it by default doesn't mean it's technically impossible for them to turn on logging. And the thing that I always come back to is if you don't run it, you don't ultimately have control. Mm. And I don't really blame ProtonMail for this. Uh, you know, they are beholden to the government. Like the yep. government's going to come in and they could have done like Lava Bit and shut down. Um, they chose not to for various reasons. I think um, what is not clear, and this is not Proton's fault, but what is not clear here is what the crime the person committed was and whether they were using proton mail to under like to coordinate and or undertake that crime and i think for me that's a big difference because i could be out jacking a car but that doesn't mean you get to read my email mm -hmm. right if i'm not using the email to um to coordinate said activities and things like that that doesn't give you the right to go and breach that notwithstanding something like a warrant mm -hmm. right but but um we don't know so from I've been getting conflicting reports as to what happened here. So there are some people that were saying like this person it was, was simply squatting to make a political statement in France mm -hmm. and the building owner couldn't eject them for various reasons. That seems like a big stretch for France to then come knocking on Switzerland's door to come put pressure on a, an email provider. And so I think those things matter, but ultimately if it's out there, you put it out there. That that's just the way that it is. And and anybody can be compelled, you know, shy of actually burning their data centers to the ground. They can be compelled to turn that stuff over. And that's just something you gotta you have to be okay with. Yeah, I I, I guess I just kind of step back anytime we start talking about the why they did something and say, well, I don't I don't know why that that to me doesn't factor into the discussion of encrypted email and the benefits that that provides the limitations that that has as you correctly pointed out anytime it's a service run by another person so it's it'll be interesting to watch to see it'll be interesting to watch because you can either take a hard stance and say we're never compromising here we never do this that or the other the problem is that kind of service 
doesn't really have a long shelf life. Eventually, somebody's going to use it for something malicious, and then it just goes away. And then the rest of us that do want to use Proton for legitimate purposes to maintain privacy, and we don't want to engage in illegal activity, um, are able to do so. And again, if you understand what Proton Mail is and how it works, the content of that guy's email was never, so far as I understand, was never compromised. They still don't have the keys to the email, which is all they really promised to begin with. And they've clarified the IP thing. So yeah, I mean, like he ended that the defendant ended up just kind of surrendering the metadata, and I mm-hmm. think that that kind of gets lost in the story. Like, yeah, that tells you the header and and all of the rest of that. But I think that um, I don't think that we should be giving Proton Mail that much of uh, as much flack for this as, mm-hmm. as it is, because like I said, they don't do it by default, which means that your history is safe. So, you know, at the point where you actually get on somebody's radar, it's from that point forward that they can turn something on. It's not like they can go back into history and they've got this archive of data on you. It's not being done now. You could screw up in the future and and be a target in the future, then they could turn that on. But that's another thing that I think hasn't really gotten a lot of play. Like people are talking about as if this has violated the person's entire life. Well, it was eight months from the point from the point that Proton Mail was approached forward not you know everything in its entirety yeah yeah which is yeah a hundred percent and and that is what you get to with if a police officer pulls you over takes your phone out right and they go through your photo history you know like a google photos or something like that they're going all the way back gmail all the way back calendar all the way back um so uh, puts things in perspective if nothing else our pick of the week this week is you launcher you can learn more at itsfoss.com slash ulauncher. Ulauncher is a quick application launcher built using Python while utilizing GTK. Its fuzzy search algorithm allows you to find applications or documents even if you've misspelt them. You can install uh, Ulauncher and then use control space to get the application launcher after you open it from the applications menu the first time. Now, my understanding is this comes uh, on Pop! OS, but you can install it on any distro of your choice. And so if you're looking... For a quick way to get applications up and running or find documents, settings, those kinds of things on your computer, check out Ulauncher. Again, you can learn more at itsfoss.com slash Ulauncher. Our gadget of the week this week is CryptoSteel. You can learn more at CryptoSteel.com. The CryptoSteel capsule is, this is cool. So this actually was shared with me uh, with one of our clients. And... uh it is a small, very well-machined, very well-made uh, steel capsule. I mean, the thing is is a tank. And th- it's considered a premier backup tool for offline storage of valuable data without using any third-party uh, uh, involvement. And so essentially, the way it works is this. You have a metal tube, and you unscrew the end of the metal tube, and slide out a small rod that's attached to the end of the cap. And once you've slid this this once you've slid this rod out, you can unscrew the other end of the rod and this enables you to slide things on or off the rod. And so inside the kit, they deliver a number of tiny little tags. Each tag is stamped with 0 through 9, A through Z, <clears throat> special characters, those kinds of things. And you get multiples of each one obviously. And so let's say you had a recovery key for your Bitwarden. You would assemble 
uh, if, let's say you used a passphrase. You would assemble the first word, and then you'd put a spacer in there, put the second word, put a spacer in there, and you'd assemble letter by letter this entire recovery phrase. Then you would reinsert that metal rod with the cap back into the tube, tighten it back up, and it is fire-resistant. It is water-resistant. It is IT uh, attacker-resistant because it is, after all, an offline device. You don't have to worry about you know, power dying, uh, you're not plugging the flash drive in long enough. And so it, the, the, the power dies and you lose data. So, uh, the material is stainless, shockproof, acid resistant, fire resistant up to 1400 degrees Celsius for you. Those of you over on this side of the pond, that's 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. It's compatible with, uh, with almost any kind of uh, almost any kind of key. So you can use it for crypto currencies. You can use it for Bitwarden. You could use it for the master password for your password vault. And even in the cases of things like aggressive theft or bribery or vandalism, uh, it's going to stay safe because it, you can physically store it somewhere like a safety deposit box or a, uh, or a, a you know, a, a safe in your house or something like that. And so what the thing that really stands out to me and the thing that I really liked about this Every time I've tried to look at ways to back up really important stuff, super critical stuff, master password type stuff, it always occurs to me like, what do I put this on? If I put it onto an encrypted drive, uh, then somebody else, then I have to, A, I have to remember the password to get into the drive. But the other thing is what happens if the drive fails? And so this, you are giving up the opportunity to protect it digitally in any some way. If somebody gets a hold of this thing, they have the key. But the good news about that is you can treat it almost like anything else valuable in life, and it's completely immune to any sort of offline or excuse me, any sort of online attack. Doesn't matter how far they get into the network, doesn't matter what they penetrate. You're never, ever, 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 ever going to get a bunch of little key tags sitting on side of a metal ring. So it's just a fantastic little device. Again, it's the Crypto Steel. You can learn more at CryptoSteel.com. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. In the news this week, the CentOS clone known as Rocky Linux is getting support. So Red Hat may be no longer be offering the old style CentOS Linux, but other groups have come up and begun to fork CentOS into operating systems that they're now adding technical support to. And so this includes the company CIQ, which is offering support services for Rocky Linux. Now, both Rocky Linux and Alma Linux are two of the most popular ones that uh, respins of Red Hat, essentially. Alma Linux has already had support from its sponsoring company, Cloud Linux, and now Rocky Linux does from its parent business, CIQ. Quote, at its core, CIQ wants to redefine how customer service is done in this industry, said Brian Leal, CIQ CMO, in a statement. So many companies say that, but we're actually showing it in two ways. First, we're giving Rocky Linux users exactly what they want, simplified, affordable support. And two, we're helping small independent users just as much as we support big enterprises. So, Really happy to see that this has been the community response, right? It, to me, these are all positives. It, this is where open source shines like no other because Red Hat makes a decision. They didn't take anything away. In fact, if anything, and we had Red Hat on this program to talk about this, from their own words, we are giving you something more. We're giving you actual Red Hat as opposed to just a respin. And so when that client, when that customer, when that person, when that hobbyist, whoever it is, wants to transition to a true rel copy, all they're doing is changing the type of license subscription, right? Now, 
the downside is that you're kind of on borrowed time, right? Red Hat can change that agreement at any time, and then you'd be hosed. But at the moment, it is really an upgrade from, from Red Hat's perspective and from people that are using the Red Hat product. It's an upgrade. And now you're getting the actual code under a proper RHEL license agreement from them. They let you use it for business. They let you use it for personal uh, use. And I think they only cap it at like eight machines or something like that, at which point you'd have to sign up for another RHEL account. So Red Hat doing a great job. Rocky Linux comes along, one of the first ones, and does a respin, and it's it's pretty good. It works really well. And and we've had Gregory on this program talk to him about his efforts on uh, Rocky Linux and what they intend to do. He obviously Greg Gregory obviously makes a lot of his money and 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 spends a lot of his time in the high computing space and so high performance computing space and so CentOS Linux. Scientific Linux, Red Hat is a big part of that for him. So it's a natural, uh, cohesive agreement between his parent company and what they're trying to do. And if you're a smaller business and you rely on the server-grade software, it's nice to have somebody that digs into these issues all day and offers support. And then there's Alma Linux. And we have not given Alma Linux enough time on this program, to be honest. We're reaching out to them to see if we can get them on the, on the, uh, on the program, but Alma Linux is the free Linux operating system for the community by the community, and it's open source governed, free forever enterprise Linux distribution focused on long-term stability and providing uh, production-grade performance. Now, this is a, again, like Rocky Linux, a bug-for-bug compatible version of Red Hat. And one of the things that really caught my attention with Alma Linux is they are also uh, reaching out to support. So they have the parent support from Cloud Linux. But the other thing that they're doing is they hold weekly meetings and allow people to show up, voice concerns, address them. They have community chat. They have community forms. They're on Reddit. And so uh, they've done a really great job. And Alma Linux is actually what we've switched to for most of our clients. Um, when we do virtual host deployments now, we're shipping those with Alma Linux, and it's worked really, really well. Um, Steve, I would understand if this is something you didn't want to uh, you didn't want to dig into or didn't want to comment on. But have you played with either Rocky Linux or Alma Linux? And if so, what did you think? I haven't actually played with either one of them because, at least for me, I I hopped on um, stream pretty early on just because the idea of not actually having to ever reinstall my operating system really appealed to me for the spots where I'm using that. And that has nothing to do with the fact that I work at Red Hat. That was just, that appeals to me. You know, I run I run a rolling distribution on my desktops and I kind of like that idea of the, the, the it's, it's not rolling stream isn't because it's still like kind of cut releases. There's QA and making sure that the packages all go together. But, from the standpoint, it's rolling that I never actually have to, you know, reinstall again. And that appealed to me because, you know, I end up with these CentOS 6 boxes kind of hanging around. Mm. And I don't really want to touch them, but they're too crusty to to actually uh, dual purpose because the libraries are too old or whatever. So um, I never really found a need because I didn't, I personally didn't see what the big deal was with like why stream was yeah, I think I think where uh, people got nervous about stream is it seemed like there was there's a reason that you would want to run a binary. You know, there's a reason that Red Hat doesn't just move to stream, right? That, it, that they're keeping a static 
uh, a static build. And I think that there are a number of different organizations. I think there's people in, even in their homes that say to themselves, I just want to install it. I want to run it for 10 years. And I don't want I don't want things to change unless it absolutely has to because of a security reason. Um, and so I think there's probably some of that. But, you know, like I said, I think they're all good choices. Yeah. I mean, I understand. So the reason why RHEL doesn't go with Stream, in my opinion, right? Uh, Steve is not acting as the media arm for Red Hat at this point. But we have a lot of clients that have to recertify their products when point releases change or when something major changes. And sometimes to the point when we have a security fix come in, even that tiny bump will cause some of our more um, conservative clients to have to recertify the entire that is part of the reason why stream isn't isn't a big selling point for for our customers and the people that do want to have kind of that more bleeding edge are going to look more towards something like coros where you know it's a container based operating system where you could roll your most critical components inside of a container and and kind of keep more up to date that way also in the news, Ventoy is getting a UI. Ventoy is now available for Microsoft Windows and Linux. It can create bootable USB drives containing Linux and Windows ISO files. With the latest 1.052, Ventoy has added a native GUI for Linux, which you can use to install Ventoy onto USB devices. This is similar to the ones that you've been that are have been available on Windows since the early day of Ventoy releases. Once you install Ventoy on a USB stick, all you have to do is copy the, some ISO files over to the USB drive and you'll get a bootable USB drive. The new GUI uses either GTK or QT depending on what you prefer. The new Ventoy Linux GUI lets you choose. A USB device shows the current Ventoy version and the Ventoy version installed on the USB drive. Then has various options that allow you to do things like enable secure boot support, choose the partition type, either MBR or GPT, set the partition configuration, align the partition with four kilobytes to preserve some space at the end of the disk, remove Ventoy from the USB device, or choose the user interface language. When you download the latest Ventoy binary, you'll notice some Ventoy GUI executables, such like Ventoy GUI dot x86 underscore 64, uh, dot arch 64, uh, dot i386, and dot mips 64 el so exciting to see that this is a uh that this continues to grow in popularity and that they continue to add features i while i'm not personally a big fan of uis uh i'll typically do things from the command line because i find it to be faster i it is more approachable to new users and it's explorable uh, what I've learned over the last few years is when you have a really decent UI, it allows people that have never used something before not only to come and inviting to go play with it, but also it allows them to explore and discover the features of functionality that they're looking for rather than have to specifically search for it through documentation. So I think there's some advantages there. Um, Steve, you're still a fan of Ventoy? Sure. I mean, I like I said, I've, I've moved more to having um, like a Pixie server than... Mm than anything else i just find that more convenient um and so i've i've kind of reverted to having my three individual flash drives that i kind of rotate through just just because uh you know old man yells at cloud it's it's uh i broke my my flow using ventoy not that there's anything wrong with that it mm -hmm. just um i i got used to working where i just plug it into a certain network and the box would boot up and and pull down the iso it was supposed to yeah, that's awesome. What are you using to, to do your Pixie server? 
honestly, just uh, TFTP and the the basic uh, Linux tools that that come with Pixie booting. Okay, very cool. So Facebook and WhatsApp turns out the service that famously offered end-to-end encryption, which most users would interpret that both Facebook and WhatsApp can't see or read the message, uh, turns out they can read the message and they can forward them to law enforcement. So the claim has been contradicted by the simple fact that Facebook employs a thousand people uh, known as WhatsApp moderators whose entire job it is to review WhatsApp messages that have been flagged as quote-unquote improper. Now, the loophole here is this. WhatsApp end-to-end encryption works until the recipient of any WhatsApp message flags a message as inappropriate. Once a message is flagged, the message is then copied from the recipient's device and sent on a separate message over to Facebook for review. Messages are typically flagged and reviewed uh, for reasons that would be for the same reasons that they would review a Facebook post or Facebook message, including things like fraud, spam, uh, illicit content, illegal activity. And so when a message flags a WhatsApp message for review, that message is batched with the four most recent prior messages. And then that entire thread is sent to WhatsApp for review. Now, I take a couple of issues with that. First of all, I think it's funny. I, I get I get I kind of chuckle. I belly chuckle when I read stuff like this and I go. Really? You you actually thought that your that your that that was a secure and safe way to communicate was to use Facebook and and WhatsApp, the king of data mining? Are you kidding me? So after I get over my belly chuckle and I and I I, I come back from it, then I start looking at it and I start thinking this, right? So on its face, again, just like the Proton Mail discussion, to a certain degree, these companies are going to do what they have to do to avoid getting pressure from law enforcement and to avoid their products being used for illicit activity. Now, if ProtonMail values privacy and values security, and so they're willing to tolerate, how shall I say, a little bit more shady stuff than uh, than anybody else because they don't believe it's any of their business to look into it in the first place, Facebook doesn't even have that bar. So anything that they can actively do to remove things that they don't like, not just that are actively illegal, but things that they don't like, things that would shed, put, cast a bad light, things that they don't agree with politically or ideologically, those are all things that Facebook, WhatsApp are going to take a stand on. What concerns me about this is not necessarily that Facebook has a way to to uh, to surpass end-to-end encryption, that that option is given to any user, that they can flag it and and, and, and send that message in for review. In fact, really, if you think about it, it's not a whole lot different from uh, from a user just screen capping a message sent in Element, which is end to end encrypted, right? And sending it to me, PMing it to me and saying, "Hey, you run Linux Delta. This guy is using you know this server to do something bad. Here's the evidence of it. Do something about it." Right? It's essentially the same thing. And one user of the end to end encrypted information is voluntarily surrendering that to somebody else to go do something about it. My concern comes in in, a, in really twofold. The first is that it begins to blur what end-to-end encryption is, and it and it and it and it. I guess it short sells what we're trying to accomplish with through encrypted communication. And so when stories like this come out and people go, "Oh, that end-to-end encryption is not really end-to-end encrypted," it just goes in and they click the button, and then that starts to give true end-to-end encryption a bad name because most programs don't have a tell-all. The second thing that concerns me is this. We are quickly skating to a point in society to where if you don't agree or like with what someone else says, you simply report them or you simply, you know, tell on them to get them in trouble. And 
Facebook's own moderators, WhatsApp's own moderators have come out and said the the volume is absolutely horrific. We don't even get context of what language this stuff is happening in. So oftentimes we get something and it'll come from like a women's bra company and it will get flagged as the AI will flag it as sexually explicit material. Um, and other times there'll be something that's completely appropriate within the context of a conversation, but because an automatic bot doesn't like it or is concerned about it, that gets flagged and it gets sent to us. And so this is hugely problematic and it's difficult to keep up with this volume of uh, just a fire hose of information coming at us. And we're trying to decide just on a couple of text mess uh, on a couple of messages. We get a minute to review it and we have to make a decision on if this is good and if this is bad. It seems to me that we have reached a point where everything in life has to be moderated. And so I kind of take exception to that. Steve, I'm curious. I, I, you don't strike me as a big Facebook user, but did anything in here surprise you or stand out to you? Not in the slightest. I, um, I think you have an interesting point about watering down the term. I think that's how I would phrase what you're beating around at. We're watering down the term of end-to-end -end encryption because it's still end-to-end -end encrypted. If you think about the idea of encrypting your drive and you can have multiple keys that can decrypt the drive, and they do that for various reasons, for example, being able to rotate your keys, mm -hmm. that drive is still encrypted. All that Facebook is doing, I'm assuming... It on at least on a logical level is when inserts the Facebook key into the encrypted uh, chat area, and then they can go and take a look. And of course, that that is a perfectly legitimate use of encryption. So I'm I'm not surprised at all. And it it seems to me that anybody who who would think that using you know Microsoft Teams or Facebook or you know any of these others to actually protect their privacy um, really doesn't understand how corporate liability works. And I'm not even thinking nefariously, right? These companies have to protect themselves on a, on a fairly large scale from the liability that they have um, on their platform. We're just, I don't see us getting, I see this getting worse before it gets better, to be honest with you. I think that the liability that's going to come with this and the pressure that's going to come from governments and officials and all of those types of things to either, to either entirely ban end-to-end -end encryption, and if they can't do that, then water it down to the point that it becomes meaningless. That's my real concern. And so as these other more prominent platforms become the de facto standard and get a bunch of people in what they're doing is creating network effect. And so mm -hmm. it becomes difficult to get people to say, Hey, well, why would I sign up for that thing when all of my friends are over here? Um, and the, unfortunately the public platforms, the things that people are flocking to are the, probably the worst platforms from a privacy and security aspect. And so I guess that's kind of disappointing. I mean, from from one aspect it is. From from another aspect, it doesn't really bother me because I think that um, the people who who I want to communicate with, who will understand this sort of stuff, they're going to let people. It's kind of like you know, everybody knows that there's this giant highway, so they hop on the highway, and I take the service road beside beside the highway and watch all of them stuck in traffic. Like mm -hmm. I feel the <laughs> same way. Uh, you know, it, it is. It's just going to attract the mass attention and the people that don't understand what's happening anyway. So if I put them on a more, a more technically superior product, 
it might be harder for them to use and they're going to drop off anyways. Oh, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I guess the other side of it is what I particularly like about Matrix is it allows me to interact with those people even if they're not on the same platform. And so uh, I just I bridge them and it doesn't really matter what platform you're on. You're a Matrix chat to me. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. Hey, all of the articles and references that we do, including the articles that we don't get to, we publish those in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com, as well as the entire back catalog of all of our episodes. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We invite you to join us live at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.